a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad you could join me today. We got a lot to cover. First thing I want to do is thank my many sponsors. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and last but not least, monticellocollege.org. There are links to each one of these sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and uh, I would encourage you, if you are curious, go find out who they are. Drop them a line. Tell them, hey, I heard Brian talking about you. He was saying nice things. They'll be happy to know that their advertising message reached your ears and I'll be happy to know that uh, they know that. Anyhow, thanks for joining us. So what is this program all about? If you are new to The Brian Hyde Show, I'll tell you that uh, I am doing my very best to, I was going to say inspire, but I'm going to put it differently, to beg people to please think more deeply about the stuff that's going on around us. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Because I'm not begging that you please agree with me, please validate me, tell me nice things and make me feel good about whatever it is that, that I'm talking about. It's more important to me, though, that uh, that you simply be willing to dig a little deeper than just the headlines, be willing to look beyond the narratives that are offered to us, that purport to tell us all the news that's fit to print or or anything like that. Dive in a little bit deeper. See what it's about. Do your homework and own your worldview. And if you know what, if we don't see eye to eye on something, that's okay. The sun is not going to suddenly spin off into another part of space and leave us here, you know, freezing to death. That's just life. Sometimes we won't agree. But I'm trying to do my best to help point out some things that may not be obvious to those who who take ownership of their worldview and thinking clearly and independently during times of crisis lightly. Case in point, I've talked a few times over the last few weeks about uh, the continuing federal effort to roll up all of those people who are guilty of what what we are, are being told was an insurrection. And this narrative is taken so seriously by the political class. And yet that narrative is having a tough time holding up to scrutiny. And the FBI is quickly morphing into a politicized American Gestapo in terms of how it goes after those who were present at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, look, I'm not trying to excuse misbehavior or damage to property, which may have occurred on January 6th. And I think there were probably some examples of that. But to call it an insurrection... To use the terminology of war, to use, you know, the reasons why we had to have tens of thousands of troops, you know, stationed all around the Capitol. Because the election last year was so legitimate that anybody who questions it must be planning to overthrow the government. I mean, there's a vote of confidence for somebody. Oh, the truth is on our side. (laughs) But just the same, we better put on this massive show of force and, and fence everything off and make sure that everything is inaccessible as possible. Oh, and play the victim before the TV cameras. 
and talk about how traumatic it was that people were going to come and, and prevent us from doing our job of certifying the Electoral College vote. I'm sorry. I, I have no sympathy for politicians. I think that uh, I think they're disingenuous when they're when they're actually behaving themselves. But uh, the, the outright melodrama and lies have been nothing less than pathetic to behold. And, and the worst part about this is there are a lot of people who went to the Capitol because they were, you know, they were there to support Trump. They were there for the rally on January 6th. But they didn't go there with any intent of terrorizing or damaging or insurrecting or overthrowing or anything like that. They, they just, they were there. I was just looking at a story today of a 69-year-old grandmother from California. She's an L.A. County employee. And she has been rounded up like many others, arrested, charged with, uh, oh, I can't remember what the, what the charge was. It was, hang on a second here. Actually, I'm going to pull it up because I, I want you to hear the overblown language that, that accompanies this. It's, it's so overdone. And now I cannot find it. Oh, shoot. Okay. Well, this, uh, oh, here it is. FBI arrests 69-year-old L.A. woman for entering U.S. Capitol without lawful authority. But there's a photograph that they post in her case packet, which shows what a lie this is. Lois Lynn McNichol was charged with, quote, are you ready for this? Do you have a chair? Do you have somebody to drive you home after I read these weighty charges to you? I mean, they're really that dramatic. Lois Lynn McNichol was charged with knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority and violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. I mean, that sounds pretty serious, right? That sounds like, oh, my gosh, like the Hulk. She smashed her way into the Capitol and was there with no lawful authority. And that's why the FBI had to slip up and post a picture of her walking into the U.S. Capitol five months ago. Oh, What is that that we see in the picture of her walking? She's draped in a California flag. And instead of Republic of California, it says Trump country. But as she's walking in the door with a number of other people, I can see one, two, three, four police officers right there in the doorway. One of them is actually holding the door for her. Huh. I'm sorry, but we're supposed to believe, yeah, this is, you know, it's a it's an absolute necessity that justice be done and that she be taken in and and that uh, the defendant, you know, should 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 pay for her crimes against the American people. Now, apparently McNichol told the FBI, yeah, she knew about the Capitol's barriers and security measures. But when a cop is holding the door for you. She says she did not feel that she was doing anything wrong. So she walked in with a lot of other people, looked around, and then left. Now, look, you can you cannot like Trump. Okay, you can you can actually be vehemently against Trump and anyone who supports him. But I'm asking you to to appeal to your conscience here for a moment. Should this woman be facing serious federal charges? Should she have been wrapped up by the FBI in the first place? Released on a $10,000 bond? Charged in federal court with knowingly entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds without lawful authority and violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds? (sighs) I'm sorry. To, To me, that is just so much hyperventilating. 
and it illustrates something that that this is more serious. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna quit joking around here for a moment. What have we allowed the FBI to become? Because it looks for all the world like a politicized police force whose job is to go out there and punish through lawfare. In other words, dragging people into the legal system and then ruining them, maybe not even convicting them of a crime, but just simply dragging them into the system. All the fun of becoming a piece of government property, you know, treated like uh, trash by your jailers and so forth over things that that really didn't even constitute a crime. At the worst, they were maybe an inconvenience. While at the same time, there are people who very clearly were equipped, trained, and leading efforts and instigating efforts to force their way into the Capitol, breaking windows, tussling with police and so forth. And yet a number of those people who were clearly observed as leaders remain as unindicted co-conspirators. And legitimate questions have been asked. Is this because they are FBI assets? I mean, you don't have to be some crazy tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist to want to know. Why is it that some of the people who actually engaged in what could be considered riotous behavior somehow aren't the ones facing the call of justice and and finding themselves in federal court. Jeff Minnick has an excellent piece on intellectualtakeout.org. And he talks about uh, Joseph Bolanos' reputation as a pillar of New York City's Upper West Side community and how his reputation was shredded back in February when FBI agents and heavily armed police raided his mother's apartment where Bolanos was spending the night. They handcuffed him while some agents battered down the door to his home and kept him in the street in full view of the neighbors while they ransacked both apartments. Now, during this raid, a stressful time, no less, he suffered a stroke. Bolanus had a stroke, the first of two, caused by the stress of this gross miscarriage of justice. The reason for this federal assault was because Bolanus, who, by the way, is a registered Democrat, had attended part of the Trump rally on January 6th in Washington, D.C., Now, he and his friends never actually went inside the Capitol building, but a neighbor overheard him talking about the rally and in true Stasi fashion alerted the feds. We're going to come back to this story in a few moments, but uh, this this is some very disturbing stuff. Stick around. The gory details are right after the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am I'm a little bit on one today, and, and I admit, you know, I'm kind of wound up here, but it's it's because I care. <laughs> no, really, it's because I care so much, and, and I'm just, I, I don't like what I'm seeing happen with the wholesale propaganda, the wholesale spinning and gaslighting and ignoring of facts that is being used to destroy a number of lives, hundreds of lives, at least by last count, and at the same time is being used to position the federal government to take deadly aim at people like me who were nowhere near the federal capital, nowhere near any kind of riotous activity, but nonetheless 
are committed to freedom and unwilling to go along with whatever it is these people who think they're going to rule us have in store. My rights did not vanish by virtue of a questionable election, and neither did yours. Government shouldn't have the the strength to, to take away those rights in the first place. In fact, if you really want to get down to it, government can possess no power that we the people ourselves don't possess. So any power it has, any legitimate power, is delegated by the people on the condition that it will be used to serve the people. This is one of the reasons why the Constitution was written the way that it was. Called into existence a government that is limited, defined, clearly enumerated powers which were delegated and that therefore could be taken back away. But that's not how it acts. Boy, it is it is becoming a very scary thing. And when you compare it to the Gestapo, I know for some people, oh, Godwin's law, you've invoked Hitler, therefore nothing you say can be valid. I don't know. When we're talking about a politicized police force for the purpose of suppressing, punishing, and rooting out the enemies of the regime, regardless of what's right or wrong, assuming that the regime is, has become the defining body of what is right and wrong, as opposed to common morality, common sense, tradition, law. Yeah, that's pretty scary. So I was telling you about uh, this Joseph Bolanos suffered a stroke after being arrested, dragged out in the street by FBI and heavily armed police in New York City's Upper West Side. He was one of more than 500 people arrested for their activities during the January breach of the Capitol, and the numbers continue to grow. Now, Jeff Minnick says these ongoing arrests, the reputations they've destroyed, and the absurd and excessive force used to take people like Bolanos into custody should raise some frightening questions about the state of freedom in America. He says it's horrifying that our federal government has unleashed FBI agents and police on American citizens in ways so closely resembling the tactics of communist China. Now, Miranda Devine tells the sickening story of the 69-year-old Bolanos' arrest in a piece for the New York Post. Before the arrest, Bolanos was known in his neighborhood for his care of his 94-year-old mother and for often helping out his neighbors. He became a Red Cross volunteer after the 9-11 attacks. He even received a commendation from the police after rescuing a woman from a mugger. Though he was never charged with a crime... The neighbors who once regarded Bolanos as a lovable character and an asset to the neighborhood now shun him as a domestic terrorist. I mean, come on, what are they supposed to think? The police were there, guns were pointed, doors battered down. He was dragged out and handcuffed. The sad thing is a lot of people will justify that by saying, well, you know, that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't done something. Because that's kind of how we're conditioned to think these days. Jeff Minnick says, now let's head south to Florida, where police last week arrested 73-year-old pastor and Vietnam War veteran James Kusick for being inside the Capitol building during the riot. As reported by Gateway Pundits Cassandra Fairbanks, Kusick claims no one told him not to enter the building, and the police with whom he chatted even directed him to a bathroom. Now, anyone who was in Washington for this rally knows how few portable toilets the city provided for hundreds of thousands of attendees. The police also took into custody Kusick's son and one of Kusick's friends, both of whom had attended the rally. 
When Kusick's daughter asked the officers why they were arresting her father, the police seemed embarrassed and answered they were just doing our job. The federal government is still holding many of those who participated in the January 6th protest in solitary confinement in a Washington jail. Months after the event, no trial in sight. Not only are they still imprisoned, but they are being put through re-education camps. Julie Kelly reporting for American Greatness writes of court-appointed lawyers pushing anti-American propaganda on their clients with whom they have many political disagreements. And what they're doing is they're requiring these, these uh, prisoners, these, these, uh, uh, these defendants, to write essays about how I need to become more aware of what my whiteness has caused. You know, just typical identity politics, woke claptrap, which makes this seem, again, a lot less like justice and a lot more like some kind of a show trial and some kind of a very public struggle session that you would have expected to find in Mao's Chinese Cultural Revolution. The question I have for you is, are you and I supposed to pretend that this is just normal? This is, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what the founders intended. This is the way the world works. Now, what about those looters on the political left, asks Jeff Minnick. You know, the ones who rioted over the last year, burning buildings, smashing windows, looting stores, attacking both innocent bystanders as well as police in cities across the United States. Many of those arrested were never tried and were released without bail. In New York City, for example, hundreds who participated in riots there a year ago have had their charges dropped. The district attorney's office claims what well, were overwhelmed by a backlog of cases from the lengthy closure of the courts during the pandemic. So why do these folks on the political right get the treatment that they're getting? Minnick says we should be outraged by this discrepancy in treatment and what it reveals about the corruption within the Department of Justice, the FBI, and other branches of our law enforcement. What sort of government treats its citizens so despicably? One might also ask why those who actually committed violent acts of arson, looting, and assaults aren't facing similar consequences. Furthermore, why aren't our elected representatives doing more to rectify this situation? Who's really in charge of our government? Jeff Minnick says we expect to find such blatant injustice in places like communist China, Cuba, Venezuela, certain nations in the Middle East and Africa, and other countries around the world. But in the United States of America? He says whatever one's political persuasion, conservative, liberal, progressive, libertarian, these raids and arrests should frighten and anger all Americans. If the authorities can arrest and abuse good citizens like Bolanos and Kusik while allowing real rioters to go free, they can do the same to the rest of us. He says sooner or later, the foot soldiers in law enforcement who are conducting these raids and making these arrests need to wake up. I'm just doing my job applies when you're arresting real criminals, but it's also the watchword of fascists and communists. And he says it's time for all of us to wake up. Now, again, my goal in sharing this is not to make you angry or to make you fearful. It's to make you aware what you do with this information is up to you. But if it can be done to them, I mean, even if, you, if you're solidly on the political left and you're like, well, good, if they were Trump supporters, they deserve this. Just keep in mind 
What you allow, what you celebrate government doing to other people can and will be revisited on your head at a later point in time. This is why it's, it's widely understood. The cause of liberty is not moved by small souls. You know, the kind of people who delight in seeing other people suffer under the, the heel of, you know, oppression. So don't cheer. Don't sit there and make light of the fact that, well, yeah, these guys, they shouldn't have been there. They shouldn't have gone to the rally if they weren't going to take their chances on, you know, ending up there. It's okay to admit it's It's wrong. And it needs to be stopped. Do you have the courage to speak up even if you don't agree with them? See, that's a test of your commitment to principle. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to one of my sponsors. That would be the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is a message particularly for those of you who are part of the mass exodus to the Intermountain West. And if your uh, travels or your journey is going to take you to a landing spot in Utah, particularly, you need to talk to the Patriot Home Mortgage folks, especially Heather Turner's team, because it is the hottest real estate market that uh, most of us can remember. I mean, like crazy hot. Competition is very fierce. If there is a home on the market, you see something you like, you better have your financing in order or it's going to be sold before you can blink. Now, this is where Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She understands exactly what the lenders and the borrowers need. So from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages or just refinancing an existing home loan. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage gets you the loan you need at the best rate possible. NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Call them at 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. Or if you're in St. George, stop in and see them at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 or 2 in St. George. Let's talk about why the political class is so afraid right now. I think this is one of the things that, uh, look, on the one hand, I kind of get a little satisfaction because, you know, the, the same people who are like, look, we rule you and you will do what we say are the same ones who are laying on the floor. You know, there's people coming into the Capitol uninvited. (laughs) We're under attack. So they have a very inflated sense of of themselves. They have toxic levels of self-importance. And by gosh, they do not want you and I to forget who is really in charge here. And I think they're scared that there's a revolution taking place. You know, the crazy thing is they're, they're right but it's not the kind of revolution that they're thinking of. Case in point, Joaquin Book, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has an excellent article titled, We Pretend to Work and You Pretend to Pay Us. You need to hear his take on this. He says, sometimes I dream about revolution. One of those sweeping, all-consuming ideological changes that brush away the corrupt old and bring in the undefiled new. Anything but this mad chaos, please. Now, thankfully, he says, I'm not in a position to release to unleash those changes. And more importantly, I've studied enough history to know that revolutions rarely progress as smoothly and beneficially as their proponents intend. 
The outcomes in their iconic French or Russian versions may very well be worse than the terror that preceded them. The devil we know is better than the devil we don't. But, he says, my revolutionary case still has some merit. The rulers of 2020, 2021 are hopelessly detached from the masses. The politicization of everything has torn American society in two. To the point that most Democrats wouldn't consider dating a Trump voter. The religiosity of COVID has taken on a fervor not seen since the last wave of end times madness grasped the coddled American mind. By the way, he has links to all of these examples. Not even the smartest people and most eloquent commentators know how to heal the social, economic, political, religious divides. Splitting the country into smaller units with extensive foot voting seems all but inevitable. He says after the renewed extreme lockdowns in New South Wales because of positive COVID tests sneaking through Australia's iron wall, Gigi Foster at UNSW wrote that it is a political game. Correct, ma'am. Joaquin Book says what's going on here is not the fight of our lives against a fearsome pestilence. It is politicians willingly sacrificing their people's welfare, hoping the people see their actions as a sufficient offering. It's the modern analog of killing virgins in the hope of getting a good harvest. Step by step, House of Cards is turning from fiction to documentary. A corrupt fight for power, no matter the costs. Flip-flop on the viability of the virus coming from a lab according to what is politically expedient. Do several 180s on whether masks are useful or not. Epstein and McAfee unexpectedly died in custody. Cherry-picked examples? Sure. But he says at some point, the mountain of our time's cherries become large enough to build a monument of failed political power. Now, here's the good news. Happily, he says, there's a silent revolution going on. The moral power of COVID madness is losing its grounds. Invisible enemies, after all, are hard to sustain. Awkward for the vast majority of people to keep in the forefront of their minds. In fact, he says last week he traveled internationally, fearing an oppressive regime of brainwashed ideologues forcing masks, vaccination demands, and tests every step of the way. But instead, he says, I was greeted with a world much more sane than that presented on television, social media, and government websites. On the packed airport transit, officially requiring mask wearing at all times, half the passengers didn't even bother. Inside the airport, the staff routinely wore theirs around their neck until they had to interact with a distressed traveler, at which point they reluctantly and symbolically pulled it up. The flight itself was more informative. Mask up and keep your distance, said the official instructions, which the pilot and stewardess added to their usual tirade of, re- of routinely ignored announcements. Unless you're eating or drinking, you must keep your mask on at all times. So Joaquin Book says, well, as a prepared rule breaker, I kept a large stack of snacks and drinks available, fully fully intending not to wear my mask during a single minute of flight. What's the crew supposed to do? Throw me off the flight midair? He says, "To to my revived faith in humanity, I wasn't the only one with this plan. Indeed, the accessories were wholly superfluous. The girl across the aisle snored loudly with the mask around her neck. The lady in front had her nose exposed during the entire trip, opting for breathing over the imagined epidemiologic protection. The couple behind me snuggled happily, no masks in sight. The crew, so keen on insisting that seats must be upright during landing and takeoff and objecting to this or that tiny wrongdoing in the cabin, 
didn't mind the mask infractions even the slightest. And he says, once I arrived at arrival on, at my destination, I feared a rigorous inquisition of tests and certificates, but all I faced were polite questions by indifferent, though garbled, officials. Short white lies about vaccination records and the route to international freedom was ensured. Nobody cares anymore, regardless of which rules and restrictions were handed down by our almighty leaders. He says, I'm reminded of a joke from the Soviet Union. The bosses pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. The epidemically mad leaders of today pretend to rule us and we pretend to follow their rules. Joaquin Book says living under an oppressive intellectual and ideological regime that everyone knows is nonsense. You play by the rules only to avoid the worst of punishments. You wear your mask half-heartedly, not because you believe in its magic powers, but because you can't bother with the potential troubles of not carrying one. You pay your taxes not because you agree with their use or the violence backing their collection, but to avoid the mafia-style repercussions that would otherwise follow. When rules don't make sense, he says, it's the population's obligation to repudiate them, cut corners wherever possible, and create their little space of freedom wherever they can. He says, in our silent little revolution, people routinely flout curfews and quarantines and mandates, and contrary to the talking heads in the media, this is a good thing. It leaves people with a little more everyday freedom than it officially seems. Just like black markets and contraband manuscripts made life behind the Iron Curtain a little bit better than it formerly seemed, a lot of people ignore our Iron Curtain-style laws and rules, all of which let us maintain some degree of freedom. He says this silent revolution is a rebellious thirst for the most basic of anarchist ideas. In Michael Malice's version, you do not speak for me. Just leave us alone. If you don't, we'll collectively ignore you into oblivion. Now, Foster summarizes the uh, results of new research from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Lockdowns don't prevent coronavirus deaths, a result that hasn't reached the halls of power yet, but clearly present in large is pr- clearly present rather in large sways of the public. Here's a quote from the article. Even in my own analysis of last August, I guess there would be some sort of some sort of benefit from lockdowns in the form of COVID lives saved. It now seems I was wrong. Lockdowns are basically pure cost. End quote. So Joaquin Book says maybe we don't need a highly organized top-down revolution of government buildings and institutions in the shape that we horror, that we historically recognize. He says, maybe a silent revolution is already on its way. Collectively and individually, we simply ignore the rules and ignore the rulers. You truly do not speak for me. Now, I understand to some people that's got to sound kind of lawless, maybe a little bit selfish. But I would ask you to consider that can also be done perfectly peacefully. I don't want to sound like too much of a radical, at least not any more than I've already convinced you I'm a radical. But this is an approach that I use in my day-to-day life as well. If there's a law or a rule that makes sense, I absolutely will follow it. If it doesn't, I reserve the right not to. Because too often the people who made that rule or made that law do not speak for me. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And can I encourage you, please take the time to go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I publish show notes for every single episode that uh, that I post up for podcast. You can uh, follow up on this. Look, I'm not trying to tell you. Therefore, you will agree with me when you have read everything there. But I'm saying if you want to understand some of these issues better, you're going to find it's it's worth your time to follow the links, follow the various documentation links that that are found within these articles and, and, and check it out for yourself. You may still end up disagreeing, but at least nobody would accuse you of not, uh, you know, trying to vet the information and, and see if it really makes sense. A couple other things here in the closing segment of, of this episode. Uh, you know, sometimes it seems like when our politicians are feeling the heat at home. There's almost this irresistible urge to blow up people and things abroad in order to shift our attention. I've been seeing this pattern for a long time, and it, it doesn't seem to be abating. It's going on. Take, for instance, the recent defensive, defensive in quotation marks, airstrikes on what our officials are calling Iranian-linked militias, which are operating in Iraq. Well, that's a good example of it. And so I just want to I want to share with you some thoughts from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. Let's reject foreign interventionism entirely. He says, unfortunately, but not surprisingly, interventionists are learning the wrong lesson from their ongoing debacle in Afghanistan. And they're coming up with all sorts of reasons why this particular intervention has gone bad. Undoubtedly, they promise to do better in the future. But he says that's not the lesson. Americans should learn from this forever war disaster. The lesson everyone should be learning is that America's founding heritage of non-interventionism is the way to go in the future. In other words, rather than engage in smart interventionism, as the interventionists will advocate, Hornberger says America should engage in no foreign interventionism whatsoever. Now, that would mean that the United States would bring home all of its troops from overseas and discharge them. It would mean abandoning all U.S. and military and uh, and CIA bases and installations in foreign lands. By the way, that would include the the U.S. torture and prison camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. It would mean no more interventionism in foreign lands, including invasions, wars of aggression, coups, alliances with dictatorial regimes, and foreign aid. That's what Americans should be discussing and debating going forward rather than focusing on the mistakes that led to the Afghanistan debacle. He says uh, Americans should raise their vision to a higher level, one that challenges the overall concept of foreign interventionism itself. In the process, it would be wise for everyone to read or reread John Quincy Adams' 4th of July address to Congress in 1821, entitled In Search of Monsters to Destroy. In the speech, Adams sets forth America's founding principle of non-interventionism. Another thing to keep in mind was George Washington's admonition against entangling alliances. Hornberger says the turn toward empire and interventionism began with the Spanish-American War in 1898. It accelerated with two world wars. Then the Cold War was used to justify the conversion of the federal government from a limited government republic to a national security state, which is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. 
That's when Americans began living under a regime that wielded the authority to engage in state-sponsored assassinations. Now, Americans have been inculcated with the notion that the Cold War was necessary. That's another point that needs to be discussed and debated. In fact, the Cold War was nothing but a racket that was used to justify the existence of the national security establishment. Don't forget, after all, that President Kennedy announced an end to the Cold War a few months before he was assassinated. With the Cold War, interventionism accelerated with Korean and Vietnam Wars, coups, state-sponsored assassinations, kidnappings, executions, torture, secret mass surveillance, and other dark side actions on the part of the national security establishment. With the sudden and unexpected demise of the Cold War, the national security establishment was not about to go quietly into the night. Having ostensibly lost its principal Cold War enemy, the Soviet Union, and godless communism... The Pentagon and CIA began intervening in the Middle East with the aim of producing terrorist retaliation. And when terrorist retaliation came in the form of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center in 1993, the U.S. coal, the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and the 9-11 attacks, the national security establishment had its new official enemy, terrorism and Muslims. That's what they used to justify their invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, which provided an endless stream of new terrorists, which was then used to justify the never-ending war on terrorism, which was actually an even more lucrative racket for the military-industrial complex than the Cold War. Meanwhile, knowing that their forever wars in the Middle East were faltering, the Pentagon and the CIA never gave up hope of restoring Russia and China as official enemies. That's what NATO's expansion, the trade war on China, and the hostility against Russia were all about. Old official enemies being converted into new ones. And Jacob Hornberger says there are those today who are now arguing for a policy of enlightened foreign interventionism. They're saying U.S. officials should only intervene in foreign lands when the intervention is clearly in the interests of national security. To which he says, nonsense. After all, don't forget that U.S. officials were convinced that the interventions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere in the Middle East were in the interest of national security. So under a foreign policy of interventionism, U.S. officials will always consider their interventions to be in the interest of national security. Jacob Hornberger says the time has come for Americans to do some serious soul-searching with respect to the future direction of our nation. It's time to raise our vision to a higher level one that rejects foreign interventionism entirely and restores our founding principles of non-interventionism and a limited government republic to our land. You know, the crazy thing about it is it didn't matter matter whether Trump was president or whether it was Obama or whether it was Bush or Clinton. That national security apparatus continues to grow, continues to flex, continues to make its, its presence felt. Not just here, but worldwide. Of course, since September 11th of 2001, yeah, we've seen a lot of that effort focused here at home. As if you and I are somehow the enemy that needs to be kept under observation and kept in check. Kind of an interesting thought. 
One final note, I'm not going to have time to share the whole article here, but um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, politicians need to step up and have employers pay a living wage and we'll raise the minimum wage and we're going to bring people under, you know, the auspices of, you know, the gig economy. We'll make them uh, become employees of the various uh, people who hire them to do whatever it is they do. And this misguided desire to help always causes more problems. Donald J. Boudreau has an excellent explanation of how low wages are not proof that workers have poor bargaining. He says it's a common argument in support of minimum wage that low-skilled and hence low-paid workers, as opposed to high-skilled workers, have poor bargaining power. So in the language of technical economics, employers are said to possess monopsony power over their low-skilled employees. But he says that's that's a mistaken argument. And the reason it's mistaken is because workers with inadequate bargaining power will indeed be paid exploitatively low wages, but not all below average wages are exploitatively low. Workers with skill levels below that of the average worker will be paid below average wages, even if those workers enjoy excellent buying power. No worker, regardless of how powerfully positioned as a bargainer, will persuade any employer to pay him or her a wage in excess of the value of that worker's output. Therefore, wages below average, even wages far below average, do not necessarily signify that workers who are paid these low wages have inadequate bargaining power. More to the point, he says there's no good reason, with one exception that he notes later in the article, to believe that low-skilled workers in the U.S. today have inadequate bargaining power. As is true for all workers, including the most highly skilled, what matters for low-skilled workers' bargaining power is the number of actual and potential employers bidding for their services. And guess what? In modern-day America, that number is huge especially when it's recognized that the typical low-skilled worker can perform the same specific job like mowing lawns for several different employers, but can also change the specific kinds of jobs, for example, from mowing lawns to bagging groceries for which he or she is employed. This is an excellent article. I will have it linked in the show notes at the Um Look, everything I read from the American Institute for Economic Research enlarges my understanding of the world around me. There's no tribalism. There's no partisan water carrying. This is good stuff. And it's written by people who truly understand economics and are doing their best to inform rather than indoctrinate. Check it out. TheBrianHydeShow.com. That's where you'll find the show notes. These are the notes for June 29th. This is The Brian Hyde Show.